Blog Talk Radio. Hey guys, how's it going? Happy Memorial Day weekend. This is Pam with you guys back for another great uh, installment of the State of the U podcast where we get to talk about University of Miami athletics and some other selected topics in sports. Uh, see that I got a couple guys on the line. So who's here with me today? This is Mike. And this is Scott. Oh, awesome. Mike and Scott. Mike G and Scott, because we have like five or seven mics uh, on the State of the U staff. So if these guys are with me, also going to be joining us a little bit later. Uh, one of our two interns a couple weeks ago, we had Alejandro with us. This week, Brian Goins is going to hop in. Uh, he's been doing a lot of our um, State of the U baseball coverage, so uh, he'll be able to chime in on, on those topics when we get there. Um, and actually, that's where we're going to start today, talking about uh, the University of Miami baseball team. I know that, uh, you know, football is the main thing that people love, but baseball is doing some great stuff. Uh, right now, they went to the ACC tournament as the number one seed um, and actually lost two out of three. Um, so I'll, I'll just toss it up to Mike first. Uh, we lost to Georgia Tech in the opener, and that made us one and three against them this year. So why could we not find a way to, to beat Georgia Tech this year? Uh, I guess for whatever reason from the last game I heard that the middle of the lineup just didn't come through with runners in scoring position. Uh, sometimes it just doesn't work your way, and it looked like that last game it didn't as well. So for Georgia Tech, that's what happens sometimes, I guess. Yeah, the bats go quiet, I guess. Scott, um, I don't know how much uh, baseball you've been watching, but what's your, your take on uh, that so far with the, the struggles that we had against uh, Georgia Tech uh, in the first game? We just didn't get timely hitting. Uh, you know, when the pitching is not going your way, uh, you've got to be able to get those timely hits to drive in runs. And uh, the, the Georgia Tech game was just a game we couldn't get it, get the bats moving properly. Uh, we, we just couldn't get the key hits in the right situation. Yeah, and that's uh, I mean, it's tough to see, uh, and it's something that we had actually excelled at this whole year uh, was getting those timely hits, and it kind of went away uh, from us at that point. Uh, we dropped the second game also to Clemson, I believe. We came back and won the third game uh, in extra innings. I think it went 12 innings against the Duke. So overall, one and two with the ACC tournament for, for the baseball team. Uh, I'll just toss it right back to Scott. Is that um, is that passable? I know it's not what we would have preferred, but is it okay that that's what the end result ended up being? No, I find it to be unacceptable. Uh, I I think that Miami baseball is is capable of doing much more than that, and we proved that during the season. Uh, for some reason or another, the team just didn't get up for the ACC tournament. Uh, they're going to be hosting a regional, uh, I believe, and uh, it's it's going to show what this team is made of. This team must get out of the regional. They they must advance, or this whole season was off or not. Okay. Um, Mike, your thoughts? I thought, you know, I was on here two weeks ago, and I said, you know, to be the man, you got to beat the man. You got to. They did play a decent strength of schedule this year, but against, you know, the UVAs of the world, we go one and two in Florida and Florida State, kind of similar uh, results. And then I'm sure Scott can tell us more about this, but I believe the last five to ten years, Miami, when they've gotten into the tournaments or the super regionals, they haven't done so well. Um, and to be honest with you, like I, I, this is my first year kind of following baseball for college level and I've been following Miami, but I've known in the back of my mind that they haven't done really well in the tournament. So to be honest with you, this doesn't really surprise me from the little I know. 
Um, but we will have to see what this team does going forward. This is where I throw the switch to uh, the coaching staff, and I believe that it's up to the coaching staff to get the players ready to play in these big games and in these tournaments, and uh, it just hasn't happened in recent years. We've had the pitching. We've had the bats. It's not like this team has been devoid of talent the last few years. Uh, They've had it. Uh, I I just don't think that the coaching staff is able to take us to that next level, and that's what I've been preaching the whole season. And I, I think that it's about time that we start to hit on all cylinders in these key games, in these important tournaments, so we can go back to Omaha. Anything short of going to Omaha, to me, is a failure. Um, it, that's a, a very good point. I believe that uh, a lot of the Canes baseball fans will really uh, agree with you on that one, Scott. Personally, I agree with you as well. Um, you know, mediocrity or, you know, less than that for our performance. Those are things that need to be in the past, and especially when uh, we had a recruiting class that had most of the major or the the professional-level talent choose not to go to the minors and choose to come to campus. So now we have even more A-level players. Uh, We should be able to to go further and, you know, hit on all those cylinders like you're talking about and, you know, just dominate. You know, Um, I'm used used to the Ron Fraser days when hosting a regional was – was a given, and going to Omaha was a given. And the only question was whether or not we were going to win the national title. Uh, and he's a standard that I judge coaches by. And, and, you know, growing up in the program the way I have with him, uh, he's he sort of set the standard and he sort of set the tone for this program. And I just find what's, what's happening uh, presently to uh, fall short of, of, of my expectations for this program. Again, I think that's a, a well-articulated point. Uh, and just to, to wrap up or go back uh, again to the actual tournament, uh, I looked it up while you were making your very, very good point, uh, both gentlemen, but um, Georgia Tech actually won the ACC tournament today. They beat Maryland 9-4. to um, So let's kind of spin this. There are three teams that will probably be national seeds, uh, as in the top eight, so these teams will be in line to host both regionals and the super regionals um, should they get that far from the ACC being Florida State, Virginia, and ourselves in Miami. And none of those three teams made it to uh, the championship game. Uh, so with the the announcement of the seeding coming out at 8 o'clock for the NCAA tournament, um, what are your thoughts or feelings about will we – we're going to host a regional but are we going to be a national seed to host all the way up until Omaha? Mike, what do you think? Um, I, I don't know. I don't think the rankings have been tremendously kind to the Canes. I know we've been top five in a few, but um, I think they were generous at the beginning of the year, keeping us in top 25 when we were losing to teams like Stetson and a few others. But, you know, we kind of hit the point of where it was like we were in the 5 to 10 range, and we haven't gotten higher than that. With this loss, even though Georgia Tech got hot, you know, this year and went on to win, I don't know if they're top eight to be able to get the Super Regional. Um, but that's just my opinion on it. Okay. Scott? I think this is a top eight ball club. I think that uh, the seedings are going to sh- are going to reflect that. I, I think that they're going to see that we had an, an anomaly in the, in the ACC tournament and that uh, we're better than that and that this team is capable of doing better things. 
and I, I don't think it's going to hurt us too much. I, I think we're going to be able to host the whole way through. And should that happen, uh, I would love to see all the Canes fans get behind this team and actually show up and be able to uh, do some damage over over at the light. Yeah, uh, that, you know, obviously having that home field advantage down on campus would be a great thing. It's a, a wonderful stadium, Alex Rodriguez Field at Mark White Stadium or Parker. I, I forget all the monikers that go with it, but uh, it's a it's a great stadium right there on campus. It's been redone. Uh, if you have not had a Mark White shake uh, in your lifetime yet, uh, and I know that there are a bunch of you who have not, as who are listening to the sound of our voices, you should really go down. It's a great atmosphere, uh, and you should be there. Um, and on this point. There's a a bunch of websites, obviously, that cover college baseball. One is called Perfect Game, and their lead college writer, Kendall Rogers, um, he said in a tweet that somebody asked, does Miami have a shot still to get a national seed? He said, behind some teams right now. Um, so maybe or maybe not, we could be looking at uh, being on the, the borderline, kind of on the last team out of getting a, uh, a national seed. Uh, but he also went on to say that he's looking at the win in the in in any tournament more than the losses. So hopefully that can work in our advantage. Um, because yeah, having home field all the way through regionals and super regionals would be huge. Um, all right. So going uh, a little bit on and forward, uh, and we'll circle back a little bit to the baseball. Uh, Brian uh, joins us. Brian Goins, one of our interns, a little bit later. Uh, he has some insight. He's been going to a lot of the games and writing our coverage. Uh, but we're going to go on to the football team. Uh, obviously, this is one of the main things that has people understand or know the name of the University of Miami. Um, and there's a couple of things, but we're going to start with over-unders um, just for the year. Uh, the betting line from Las Vegas has 7.5 as the over-under number, and the favoring for the vote or the, the betting is on the over. So we're really looking at pretty much a prediction based upon the Vegas lines of 8-4 and four for the record for this year. Mike, with this team the way that it is, 8-4, and four, is that good enough for you? Um, is it good enough for me? I think that's the realistic point. Um, I'd go under um, if we were to ask, but I think that's the realistic uh, prognostication at 8-4. and four. That's, you know, you could either go over that and you'd be kind of going on a limb in my opinion or – you know, that's really the cutoff window, but that's why Vegas gets paid. But um, I think that's a realistic number to keep my answer short. Okay, so 8-4 and four is a realistic number. Um, mm-hmm. Scott, 8-4 and four for you, good enough? No. Uh, and, again, with the way that this team is, um, does that change your thought in process any? Well, it really depends uh, who's taking the snaps behind center. I think that if we're looking at Kevin Olsen – uh, starting day one and, and being our quarterback throughout the season, uh, I think eight and four is a realistic number, and I think that based upon having a redshirt freshman uh, being the signal caller, uh, I think it's a pretty good season. Um, it's not acceptable to UM standards, uh, but we don't expect to throw a freshman out there. Uh, on the same hand, Florida State threw out a redshirt freshman and won the national title going undefeated. Uh, but Kevin Olsen is no Jameis Winston. Um, I, I think Miami needs to have a blockbuster season to 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 get the fan base back. Uh, they have the they have a very tough schedule, no doubt about it. Uh, and it 
really depends on how they start out. Uh, they've got Louisville and Nebraska both on the road. And I think those are going to be two of the signature games in Al Golden's career that could, you know, dictate his season and dictate, you know, part of his legacy. Okay. Um, and, you know, those are good points. So, 8-4, again, obviously not what anyone aspires to. We all want to go undefeated, but looking at the construction of the roster and the, the schedule, you know, maybe uh, that would be uh, a good point. Uh, we had a couple of uh, people discussing this on Twitter, so I'm going to go with uh, something that someone said uh, and see if this changes your mind or not or how you're looking at it. Uh, and I'm going to start right back where we went with Scott. Uh, if, okay, we had an Iowan season last year. Pretend in 2015 we have a 10 or 11 win season, uh, not this current season, but next year uh, when, you know, this incoming class are sophomores. Would a seven or eight win season bracketed by nine and ten wins or more on either side, would that be acceptable for you? No, I don't think so. I, I think that the University of Miami has too great a tradition, too great a history, uh, that it, it's, it's not acceptable. It, it, it's not where this program needs to be. They need to continue to grow. They need to continue to get better, and they need to continue to get wins against teams that they've been losing to. Uh, last year, there was just some unacceptable results. I know we had some injuries down the road, but it's it's just something that this program should never get used to. It's nothing that this program should accept. Uh, as you said earlier, uh, mediocrity is not something that the University of Miami should ever have to get used to. Use my own words against me. I like it. Mike, uh, same question. You got nine wins uh, in 2013. You have ten or more wins in 2015. Is seven or eight wins in the middle of those two good enough, or is that acceptable enough for you? Uh, I think it's realistic. Um, I've been following this team for about almost 15 years now, so I've seen the kind of like the downturn, um, if you will. I'm more pessimistic and in a way, but I just I see they're still transitioning. It's kind of like when you do a coaching change, like we saw from Shannon's players to Golden's players. But now you're seeing a transition from pre-NCAA, you know, coming down with the hammer for recruiting and now post. And you're seeing since NCAA slapped us with the three scholarships and a little bit of other restrictions. Excuse me? No, you're good. I thought I heard something. Okay, I thought I heard something in the background. But, I think what we're seeing now, and I know we're going to talk about recruiting later, is a transition from the pre- and post-time. Um, and we still have a lot of players. I saw Cam, you were talking about it um, on social media. We have a lot of reaches on this team, and some of them are redshirt freshmen, sophomores, that maybe we're good at Temple, but not necessarily here um, in the ACC. They're okay for Conference USA, but not here. Um, and we, to be honest, have to recruit better than that. And so I don't see this year necessarily with those players um, – coming to fruition to be a 9, 10, 11 win team. I can see 7 or 8, um, but I believe moving forward we can be better because we will be recruiting better. And the talent will be better. Okay. Um, fair points. Uh, yeah, you know, I was talking about that a little bit. We are going to hit on, on recruiting in just a little bit here, but the main point uh, from the conversation that I was having that Mike just brought up was um, – and it was relative to Larry Hope, because for those who don't, I guess we're going to go to recruiting now. Uh, for those who don't know, um, Larry, Larry Hope is no longer 
on the University of Miami football team. Uh, we have amicably parted ways. Um, and there were some people who said that he was a reach to begin with. Um, I know a couple people who um, cover recruiting for a living. I'm not going to put anybody's name out there, but they said from the beginning of when he was recruited that he was not a Miami caliber player. Um, but we had to take guys that hopefully we could project and uh, coach up who had gigantic flaws with them. I mean, this is, you know, a Bentley missing two wheels, and we're just going to hope that we can drive down the freeway with it. Uh, it ended up not working. Uh, and the main point was, you know, you have one trait at Temple that you're going to recruit for. Well, when you're in an FBS conference like Miami and the ACC trying to get to a national championship level, there's the one opposite um, flaw that sticks out. So for Larry Hope, he had projectable size and speed for a lower-level team. If he would have went to Northern Illinois or Temple or something like that, he could have been a star because his, those two things – or one or two things, those positive traits could make you a superstar amongst that caliber of player. But here he didn't have the technique or the recognition skills or the straight cover skills uh, to really be successful. So regardless of his size and athleticism, he didn't have the talent to be on the field, and that was really what held him back uh, and got passed by a couple of players. Um, yeah, so this, the recruiting is just changing a little bit. Um, so I'm going to skip down. Um, a couple topics since we, we touched on recruiting, so I'm going to kick it back uh, to you guys, bring Scott in. Um, had a really good 2014 class. Yes, missed on a couple of guys, but that was our first Miami caliber class in a couple of years. In 2015, for recruiting, what's the one thing you want to see happen? Uh, I was a little disappointed that uh, Daniel Park committed to FAU. Uh I think that once the University of Miami starts losing uh, players to the talent pool of FAU, I, 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 I just view it as a problem. Um, I know that he was high on the UM target list, not as high as the kid that they got the commitment from, uh, but that was only a soft commitment. He said he was, he, he was still open to, to other visits, and that it, it was, you know, in fact, a, yeah, I'm going to come unless something better comes along. Uh, so I was a little concerned about that, and I think that you know the the, the term commitment uh, really needs to be something that these kids want to make to the University of Miami, and they should want to make it early. It should be back to the days where we knew we were going to get these players and we were going to get this talent pool. It seems like every time we get a commitment, FSU comes banging on their door the next day, and now they're open to their uh, recruiting opening up again. And we have to recruit these kids all over again, and that's a concern. Uh, you need to be able to get the kids to make the commitment, and then have them honor it all year long. And that's where I, I just don't know if this coaching staff has it. Well, okay, that, that's a fair point. Um, you have Joseph Yearby, um, who you know he was one of those guys who was in uh, from the beginning. As soon as he committed to the University of Miami, when he flipped from Florida State, let it not go by the wayside. Chad Thomas, same thing. People got worried about that, but I kept trying to tell people, yeah, he's taking his visits. He's going on free vacations. He wants to see what Alabama looks like. But I had never had a doubt in my mind, and from people that I spoke to, there was never a, a wavering of his brain that he was ever going to not go somewhere other than the University of Miami. That was really bad English, by the way. My my, my teacher in, in high school would beat me for using a quadruple negative like that. Um, 
as far as Daniel Carr, um, honestly, not worried about it because we got Dwayne Lawson, who's a better player, and then after that opportunity uh, kind of was shown to avail itself, uh, Parr went elsewhere. So, yeah, a little bit of, you know, he went to a, a talent or a, a second-tier kind of school like a FAU or he committed to verbally, but um, I'm not really worried about that. So your main thing is you want to see commitment stick or something like that, and that's perfectly fine. A lot of people say that in recruiting. Mike, for 2015's recruiting class, one thing that you want to see happen? Um, we've had it every year, one thing, which is one impact player. I'm looking for two. I mean, if you go back a couple of years ago, it was Duke Johnson coming in. Then last year it was Stacey Coyne coming in as a freshman. This year you don't know. Maybe it could be year B if he's back healthy. And Chad Thomas have, you know, two-headed monster in each class. Um, but I'm looking for, like, two or three guys in the next class. I don't know who they would be, but that could come in and play right away and do really well. Um, it's been nice considering Golden's been having, you know, one arm tied behind his back to find, like, one impact player. That's, I mean, first-round talent NFL. You could argue for those players listed that have already played. Um, but let's let's build on that. Let's go two or three more guys that can play from freshman year to their junior year and senior year if they decide to stay or if they leave early um, that are impact players. And that's what I'm looking for. Let's get the cream of the crop now. My concern with Lawson is how committed is he really to the program? And that that's what I want to know, and I want to hear it from him. I want to hear him say that he's committed to being a Miami Hurricane and that it's it's not a soft commitment. You know, I understand they're all going to take their trips and, and they're going to be wined and dined, and, and, that, and that's fine. I understand that. But at the end of the day, I want to know this kid's going to be a cane. I want to know whether or not I should get excited about this kid. Right. Um, yeah, I found no, him. And... No, go ahead, Mike. No, I, I, I'm piggybacking off Scott there. I, I kind of felt that was a very bizarre situation um, where we all heard about it from, you know, Brennan Carroll, and then they interviewed the player in question. He's like, yeah, I decided, you know, Miami's right for me right now, but I'm going to still take all my visits, and I'm going to still look around. It was very much a like a, a backhanded compliment to me in the way I'm signing, or I'm verbally committing to Miami, but I'm still looking around. You know, I'm not really done with anything yet. Right, and I mean, I, I get that. It's unfortunately the nature of the beast when it comes to recruiting. Um, even if you look at um, previous years, like four or five years ago, Mac Brown at Texas, they had a different scheme of recruiting because by this point, their class was mostly done because they have a junior day or had one in like March, uh, and they would get about 18 or 20 commits who would stick and then they would just recruit nationally for those four or five guys from other states that they wanted to come. Um, but over time, even Texas, and they had this, I mean, it had this huge brand, the University of Texas in the state of Texas. My mother moves, uh, moved out there. I've seen it with my own two eyes. Everybody has the University of Texas on this incredible pedestal out there. So when you're growing up, every kid wants to go there. Every kid wants to be there. Um, and, like, if you got that offer, you would commit and you would never waver. But as time went on, even the University of Texas lost that draw. Um, so these these things happen, and, you know, honestly, it's kind of cyclical because when you're on top, everybody wants to, you know, be with you. You're the hot girl. You're just, you know, cheerleading captain or whatever. Uh, you know, football team captain. Everybody wants to, you know, just be seen with you. Uh, so in recruiting, it's the same kind of thing. But sometimes it changes, unfortunately, and we're just trying to get back up to the top of the hill with that. Okay. Um, so, yeah, you know, um, we'll see uh, who is solidly committed. 
Um, speaking of guys who might not be solidly committed, um, not to cause panic, but it has been said by himself, Dexter Williams, the running back out of Orlando, arguably, well, probably right now, our best commit, um, he's the one who's going to take his visit. And um, he actually suffered an ankle injury in his spring game this week. Um, so I'm not sure what uh, the status of that injury is going forward. But um, with all of our UM running backs right now, it seems that ankles are a problem. Um, so mm-hmm. not, do you think that do you think that ankles are like the new ACLs um, mm-hmm. that are injured or what? Well, I think when you're cutting and and trying to go against the grain and. Of the field, I think that that you're susceptible to ankle injuries as a running back. I think that's something that's been pretty prevalent over the last couple of years. Um, uh, you know, being injured in, in spring, I don't know how that's going to carry into his fall season. Um, but I, I hope for the young man that, that he doesn't have anything too terrible that that, that he's going to lose time over it. Um, I, I think that there are injury experts out there that will be able to tell you that injuries sustained in the spring shouldn't keep you out in, in the fall, uh, you know, given proper rest and treatment. Okay. And, Mike, um, you know, is, do you share that thought that Scott just had, or is there maybe another reason why uh, we're seeing a, such a preponderance of ankle injuries, especially to running backs recently? I mean, I couldn't tell you for running backs. If I was going to say an injury that's on the rise, I'm um, just looking at baseball with Tommy John surgeries, and that's changing to another subject. But if you're talking about injuries that have come up, like more frequently, if you're talking about like ACL injuries are being more seen more, Tommy John is definitely for pitching a huge injury, as you know all the Marlins fans know. So, but a- ankles, I don't know. If if he broke his ankles, he could be out one to two months. But I'm not familiar with what exactly happened, whether it's a sprain, grade one, two, or three. So. Right, I mean, he said, uh, Dexter Williams, this is again on Twitter, that he was waiting for the results of his x-rays. So hopefully it's yeah. not bad. Um, personally, um, I tore my ankle all the way up, all the soft tissue and everything when I was in high school playing basketball. Um, and I had, you know, months and months and months of rehab. And I didn't break any bones. It was just all the connective tissue. So hopefully it's nothing like that for him because, you know, I still deal with that to this day many, many moons after high school. So Hopefully for him it's just, a, you know, maybe a, a, a fracture or, you know, something uh, of the structure like that so it won't keep him out too long. Mm-hmm. Um, so going back to this year's team, because um, we were jumping around and we put the recruiting in a little early, so, you know, our, our set list got kind of messed up uh, in a musician's kind of way. Um, mm-hmm. Going on or following the 8-4 uh, the and four prediction or over-under thing, uh, the, the statement came up that uh, in a video by Campus Insiders, uh, one, one of the commentators had a really nice soundbite thing. He said Miami is like grandpa um, driving on the freeway. You know, he's, going, he's getting there but not quickly. Um, and basically talking about the level of talent that we're assembling on this team as in it is improving from where it was, but it's not where it needs to be. Uh, and the statement was also made, we don't have, Miami does not have the talent to compete with the elite in the ACC. Uh, and I took to Twitter and had a conversation about that. So, really, we're talking about Florida State and Clemson. Those are the only two teams I can think of that are vastly more talented than us. And, honestly, Clemson's a discussion on if they are. Um, Scott, how talented just on, yeah, just how talented do you think this current Miami team is? 
I think they have the horses. I think the the the, the their two deep depth chart is as impressive uh as any other team in the ACC. Uh it's just a question to how well it's going to translate to actually playing on, on the field. Uh you know, they're they're too deep is is impressive. Uh, they have individuals that that can play the game of football. It's a question of how well they play as a team, and I think we saw that last year, where you had a bunch of individuals that weren't on defense that weren't buying into the team concept. Uh, and I think that it's really going to be a question of how well they play as a unit. Uh, but Miami's got the horses, and they've they've got guys coming in from this class that can really contribute. It's just a question of how well it translates on the field. Uh, one of the things that I would throw into the mix now in the ACC is you've got Louisville coming in, and they've been recruiting very well. And their wide receiver coach, Lamar Thomas, has uh, promised to uh, give it to us this year, as he did in the bowl game. And uh, Louisville concerns me. Well, obviously Louisville should concern everyone. They're the first game up of the year, and we're going to get to the schedule in a little bit. Um, well, yeah, very good points. Lamar Thomas, number 36, he had an uh, outstanding career as a Hurricane um, and obviously coaching against his alma mater. So, as you know, he's going to do great stuff coaching up his players and the players are going to play pretty well. Um, but back to your original point, you said, okay, we have the individual talent, but, you know, maybe the collective uh, as it is, you know, implemented or used as a unit on the field at, uh, you know, at any given time, that could be or is the thing that you want to see uh for our future or current and future success. Mike, how talented do you think this team is right now? I think currently behind Clemson and Florida State, they have the best overall team talent. I would say in the Coastal, though, Virginia Tech will have the defensive reign. That's just the way they've been for the last 10 years or so um, in the conference. They've been top 10 defense or top 25 defense. Um, I would say next year, looking forward, Top offense in the Coastal is probably North Carolina. I know Ebron's gone, but Marquise Williams, their quarterback, he they finished, I believe, 5-1. and one. They started at, what, 2-4, and four? Um, and they did really well to end their year. It wouldn't be surprising if Larry Fedora and his offense was the number one. But overall, talent-wise, I would say Miami has the best team. But if you're translating that, that means you got two teams ahead of Miami, if you think about Virginia Tech and North Carolina, in my opinion. Um, just on the talent-wise for the unit. Um, so that's where I would put Miami, is third in the Coastal right now, behind Virginia Tech and North Carolina. On, on achievement, as in wins and losses, or on talent on the roster? Uh, I would say wins and losses going forward, coaching, I guess. Okay, cool. Um, so, yeah, talented, but um, need to have that talent be successful, which is you know, a lot of what uh, Scott was saying. Um, earlier, mm-hmm. and, you know, it's it's really easy to see. And I know people are going to hop up and say, oh, yeah, uh, they were talking about defense, and we should talk about Sinatra and blah, blah. I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to do that. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, we need to get better as uh, a unit uh, on defense because our offense obviously uh, did pretty well. So staying with the, uh, the schedule, since you brought it up, this is kind of an added bonus question. Uh, some of the game times came out for the early games uh, in the year, uh, and the Louisville game is going to be a night game. The Nebraska game is going to be a, a night game also, um, or a 4 o'clock, a 3.30 kick, so that's a national TV game. 
Um, and then, obviously, the Thursday night game at Virginia Tech is going to be a night game. Um, and I would presume also that Florida State would be uh, a prime a prime time game, hopefully a night game, because I don't want to sit in the sun for that one again. Um, of those games, uh, the four really big ones that are on the schedule right now, Virginia Tech, Florida State, Nebraska, and Louisville, Scott, which one, um, I guess, is the most important right now for you? The, the one right now that's most important to me is Louisville. Uh, you're going to be going in most likely with a freshman quarterback, whether it be Olsen or or, or, or uh, Brad Kaya, and that's the first game on your schedule. And we know how this team reacts after losses. So it's important to get that first one out of the way and win that first ACC game. Uh, I think that that's a uh, potential difficult game for us, uh, uh, potentially. I don't think Louisville is as good uh, with without Teddy Bridgewater as they were with Teddy Bridgewater. Um, but they still have a very talented team coming back. And I think right now, I think that's the most important game that they have to look forward to. Uh, I think after that, I, I think you can skip down to Nebraska uh, because, once again, that's going to be a game that all the uh, recruits are going to be watching. You know, it's, it's going to be a nationally televised game. And I think that's very important for us. And I hate to sound trite and cliche, but they're all important, and you just got to take them one at a time. Well, I mean, that's very true. You do have to take them all one at a time. But, you know, with it's the off season, so we're just going to do some speculation on that. Um, Mike, for you, which game is the most important as we sit here discussing right now? Um, I, I just piggybacked off Scott. I would go with Nebraska. I think Louisville lost a lot. You're going to see it next year. They were playing in the, you know, was it American Conference? And they had Bridgewater, and they were successful. And now they're going to the ACC without Bridgewater and two other players that were drafted in the first round, as well as both their safeties, I believe, and their starting middle linebacker from last year. Um, I think Louisville is going to take a step back this year, but that's just my guess for them. But the Nebraska game is big. Nebraska's got quite a few players coming back. It's going to be at their place, and it's an out-of-conference game. We haven't done very well against top 25 teams, and I mean, I just keep thinking about the Kansas State, whether it was the home or the away game or, you know, Notre Dame. So that game, that's going to be a big hallmark. Um, To be honest, I think that game hurts Miami more than it helps it. Um, If they win, it springboards them, so it can help really well, but if it hurt, if they lose, you're going to start hearing whispers, can Golden beat top 25 teams? And as of this point, I think he's, what, 2 and 10, 15? Against around there, against top twenty-five, you're gonna start hearing those whispers again. So um, Nebraska is a big game for me. Okay, um, and you know that obviously is the revival of a classic rivalry, um, one that saw our victory over them in 1983 give us the national championship. Um, and we spoke about that um, previously, I think last week. Um, and then I did a video blog with Mark Rogers. You can see it on the State of the website also. We talked about the best wins and worst losses ever in Miami history, and I brought that up. So um, doing that kind of intersectional thing, going out to the Midwest, um, obviously would be a big game. For me, um, I just stick with Florida State. I mean, we've lost to them too many times in a row, and they're a very, very good team, uh, the defending national champions, and obviously giving credit where it's due to them for, for the season of success that they previously had. Um, and while not discounting the games that you all um, – looked at and mentioned, I'm just looking at Florida State because I 
honestly, personally, I just don't even want to have another year where we lose to them or I have to hear the, the voices of my friends or colleagues who, you know, went to that substandard institution in Tallahassee. Um, I just, yeah, that's that's the game. That's the game we have to win. That's the game I'm looking forward to, um, even over the ones that happen first. Florida um, State is, is going to be occurring at a time where this team should hopefully be getting hot. It's late in the season. They might have Ryan Williams back by then. And at that point in the season, they should be hitting on, on all cylinders. Well, hopefully, um, because, you know, with a team of that caliber, you know, being able to hit on all cylinders is something that we, we would need to be successful um, against them. So hopefully that, you know, will come to fruition. Um, and then we get to see, you know, some of our old uh, recruiting pals like Matthew Thomas from uh, Booker T. Washington who will be playing uh, finally for them and things like that. And obviously, uh, if you spoke of the, the Louisville and the Nebraska games and the guys of recruiting, like, <laughs> hello, I mean, Miami against Florida State, I don't think that there's a, a more direct game that has impact on recruiting, especially here in South Florida, uh, than that one. I agree. Um Okay, any final thoughts about the the early season schedule or anything, gentlemen, before we go on? Yeah, I got a tangent to throw out there. How is Ryan Williams coming back so early? I I don't understand this. I I was thinking the same thing. I don't – well, first of all, if he's coming back and they say that he might, are there reports that his uh, ACL recovery is going outstandingly well ahead of schedule? The word miraculous has been thrown around. Um, and that he might be able to play as early as the September 20th game at Nebraska, um, which would be absolutely remarkable. Uh, I just think that his injury wasn't as bad as originally thought. It, I don't see any way that it could have been a complete ACL tear and he come back. But that's just me. Yeah. I, I just, um, I'm dumbfounded when I keep hearing this stuff. I'm just like, all right, I mean, they're the medical professionals, but it's just it sounds pretty amazing to me. Maybe he's just, you know, uh, a local or a, uh, a descendant of Wolverine from the X-Men, and he just regenerates really quickly or something. Very well, good movie, I might add. I think that it, it was not a, uh, a complete tear, and I think that that's what he has going for him, was that it was only a partial tear. Okay. Right. Um, and, you know, you've seen that with other athletes. Um, with If they have, like, a meniscus tear, kind of like Russell Westbrook, uh, that happened in the playoffs last year, and he came back this season uh, at 100% because it was only partially, uh, it wasn't completely, or anything like that. I know that the meniscus and the, the ligaments in the knee are different things. One's cartilage and one's ligament. I understand that, but a similar kind of a thing. So, yeah, if, and it looks like it was only a partial tear, just like, you know, we've been saying. And hopefully, you know, that's what it is. And, you know, he's just in the rehab and he's working really hard and uh, everything is just coming together for him, and that would be it. So, um, and the other part that I was actually thinking about, maybe he's not as far ahead as the reports say, but the reports are there to give him, the player, more confidence in his rehab to try to push him a little bit more. Mm. Um, and it could, or, you know, we could just be wrong, and he really is there uh, with his rehab, and it's awesome and it's great, and, you know, that gives us another – uh, more veteran option. Uh, but that is a few games into the year, so 
I mean, maybe there's a potential that whoever starts at quarterback before uh, he comes back, if he comes back that early, plays really well and just kind of takes the job regardless of if Ryan Williams comes back or not. But, yeah, the uh, the rumors of or the, the reports, excuse me, of his rehab being outstanding are intriguing for Kane's fans, to say the least. Um, all right, so moving on and forward, we're going to go to um, – the NBA playoffs, the conference finals featuring the Miami Heat and the Indiana Pacers, uh, and then a little bit of Spurs and Thunders, uh, Thunder, excuse me. So game three was yesterday. The Miami Heat uh, were in um, terrible form in the first quarter, only scored uh, four points about halfway through and ended up turning it on in the second, third, and fourth quarters, ended up winning by about 11 points. So they, they lead the series two to one. Um, Mike, is that was that the tipping point for the uh, the Pacers? Can they come back and make this a series, or uh, have the Heat uh, effectively vanquished their foe? Yeah, I think when the series started, the Pacers were still coming off of their you know dominant performance over the Wizards. You know, they kind of lulled the sleep during the Atlanta series, and then the Wizards kind of went back and forth with them, and they kind of got in a rhythm the last three or four three of the four games against the Wizards. And then they went in and punched the Heat in the mouth the first game. And now it looks like the Heat realized, you know, sometimes it has that has to happen. Um, you need to get hit, you know, and get back up and realize, okay, this is a fight now. And I think the Wizards, or not the Wizards, the Heat have realized that with, you know, winning by, what, 10, 11 points the first game, or the second game, and then winning yesterday, too. Um, so I think they have it under control. They just had to get in the rhythm of it again. Okay. Um, Scott, is this going to be a series or is it over? It's over. Uh, I believe that the, that the Heat are going to smoke them tomorrow night, and I think by the time it gets back to Indiana, it, it, it's going to be one and done. Uh, this is a Heat team that will not lose again uh, in the Eastern Conference Finals. Uh, they're hitting uh, the mark right now. They're you know when when the Heat start hitting their three balls, they're unstoppable. It's when the Heat can't make a three pointer that we have a problem. And I think that as long as Ray Allen is contributing the way he's been contributing, and Dwayne Wade even hit two big threes last night, I think that that's a sign of things to come. Uh, I'd like to see them get a little more aggressive in the paint. I'd like to see uh, LeBron put his shoulder down uh, a little bit more, and I think that's just the icing on the cake. Uh, But I'm not worried about this team. Even after they lost game one, I knew as long as they could sneak one out, uh, in game two, that, that they would be okay. Uh, I think the series is over. Okay. Um, and, you know, there are a lot of people that share that uh, thought process. I saw a bunch of people, uh, even before the series started, saying Heat and Five, so the gentleman sweep, as it were. Um, so that echoes the sentiments of you gentlemen. Um, just saying with that, yeah, Ray Allen got really, really hot in the second half. Uh, which is not surprising because, you know, um, he's the best or most prolific three-point shooter in the history of the league. Uh, he had four threes all in the second half. And then he had Dwayne Wade. Um, let's talk about that. He's not a shooter um, by any stretch of the imagination. He hit two threes yesterday, and then after the game, he said, yo, I can shoot the three. I just choose not to do it. I don't know how much I believe that. Scott, what are your thoughts on Dwayne Wade as a shooter in the series? Dwayne Wade is probably the third best shooting guard, I think, ever to play this game. Um, 
I, I, I think that he is capable of hitting from anywhere on the court, uh, but we're, we're so used to him uh, driving through the lane and using backdoor cuts that we're not used to seeing him at, on, on, on the perimeter action. Uh, I think he's he's capable of, of putting the ball in the back of the net uh, from from wherever he is on the court. Uh, if you remember the first year that the big three were together, they used to draw plays up at the end of the game for Dwayne Wade. Now they're drawing those, those plays up for LeBron. So I, 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 I think I think Wade is deadly from from anywhere on the court. I have no problem with him putting up three ball. Okay. Um, Mike, Dwayne Wade, Studer, thoughts? How many times has this guy reinvented himself? He was a scorer that would drive, you know, when he was coming out of Marquette, that was the way he did, drive creativity, reverse layups. Now, you know, his knees aren't as good. He's getting a little older. His body's a little banged up. Now he's doing jump shots. I never thought of him much as necessarily like a three-point shooter, but definitely, you know, a pull-up jump shot. You know, it's amazing. Some guys, when they lose, certain things, you know, if they're a three-point shooter and they can't hit it anymore, and they're done. Um, and he's been playing for almost, what, 10-plus years now, and he's changed his game two or three times. I think it's amazing. You know, work on different ways to become a, you know, a quality ball player and stay really, really good. One point I'd like yeah. to add on on Ray Allen is not only is he hitting the three ball and, and he, he's converting his opportunities, but he's playing great defense. And his, right. his, his his defense was was a pretty good indication last night of what that Heat defense can do. Yeah, and I was actually going to bring that up uh, following the Dwayne Wade point we built there now. Um, this this Miami Heat defense, um, and you saw it especially in the third and fourth quarters. Um, Dan Levitard calls call them the the scorpion or constricting snake or something out of the, of, of that nature. But when they turn up the pressure and their rotations are flying around, I mean, their defense is absolutely astounding to watch. It is beautiful poetry in motion on basketball. Um, and you have guys like Ray Allen, you know, who's not a spring chicken. He's not in the early stages of his career. Uh, and just like Scott said, he was a, a valued member of, of that defense uh, in, in the, uh, the second half there. So the, the counterpoint to that defense is it takes a lot of energy to play like that. Uh, to run around the sprint of uh, all the places that you have to on defense. Um, how much of that level of championship defense do you think that we're going to see from here on out, or does it not matter Matter because the Heat are in the Pacers' head? Scott, how about it? Well, if you look at Indiana's season, they're not a big scoring team. Uh, you know, they, they max out at around 90 points. And I think against the Heat, they they've been averaging a little bit less. I know they had 107 in game one, but that was an anomaly. Uh, I, I think that we, you're going to see pressure defense. Um, I, they're still going to get beat. Their share of balls in the middle. Uh, you know, Hibbert's going to create problems for them. But I think that if you watch them, they're, they're going to be playing a very pressure defense uh, that's going to disrupt Indiana's uh, uh, a game where, where the they want to take the middle of the court, and they're just not going to allow it. The pressure that you saw in the third and fourth quarter last night is what you're going to see all night tomorrow night. Okay. Um, and if that does happen 
as a basketball fan, I would enjoy it because I just think that it's gorgeous to watch. Mike, how much of the um, killer scorpion defense do you think we're going to see? I think you can keep it up because just looking at the overall generality of the playoffs, you you couldn't do this during the year. You couldn't do it because you would just drain your players. It's kind of like hockey um, playoffs. You know, you start seeing more guys diving around, taking more hits because – Playoffs is different than regular season. I And going back to basketball, I think they keep it up because they only have, what, about 10 games left in their season, and then it's over. you got a couple months to br- for a break. So I think they do keep it up. You wouldn't see this during the regular season, though. I think it would be impossible to keep up during the regular season. I, yeah. think, that, yeah. I think that's why you didn't see it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, in, you saw it in spurts in the regular season, but you didn't see it for uh, as extended of stretches as we saw last night. Uh, and I think that's what the difference is, obviously, between regular season and playoffs. Yeah, you're going to take a little bit of time off, and you're going to uh, have the Dwayne Wade maintenance program where he misses a third or a quarter of the season um, to be ready for these last two seven-game series. Uh, and then you can turn up the defense all the way to a million and, you know, just kind of go for broke because, like you said, you do have a couple months off to rest and recuperate. One of the things I would like to see tomorrow night is I would like to see them get out to an early lead to where uh, – we don't have to go into apoplexy to see them down 15 and uh, start praying to, to everything imaginable that they come back and win the game. Uh, I'd like to see them have a balanced game where uh, they can take the lead early and and not lose it and just maintain it. That's a, that's a really good point. And uh, on that point, why do you think that the early game struggles have been so prevalent so far in this series? I don't know. It's a, it's almost like they they come out super relaxed and they want to see what Indiana is going to bring, and then they're going to tailor their defense based upon what Indiana is doing, as opposed to just dictating from the beginning and showing this is what we're going to do to you. You know, it, it's almost like a New York street fight where you have somebody say, "Do you know what I'm going to do to you?" as opposed to, to just doing it. And I, I I think that that's what they have to do. They just have to bring it from the opening whistle, and just play very hard, very aggressive, set the tone early, and maintain it. Uh, but uh, there's only so many times you can come down that 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 you can come back from 15 points down against a team uh, like Indiana. Those are very good points. Mike, why have the Heat struggled to put the ball in the basket early in the game? Well, yeah, from the offensive side, I guess, more veteran teams, they just take a longer time to get in the rhythm, whether they're driving to the basket. Um, I guess you wouldn't see that as much, you know, getting in the rhythm that way. But if you're a jump shot team, um, as the Heat could be with three-pointers or pull-up jumpers, and they're not going in at the beginning and you need to get in the rhythm, you're going to go down pretty quickly. And that's what happened at the beginning of last game, where the things were just not falling. And sometimes it does happen with veteran teams, even though they have extremely, you know, very high talent. Um, you know, it happens to everybody. You really don't see Miami driving the paint early in the game. Hmm. You know, you'll see them work the ball around the perimeter and take the open perimeter shot, and if it falls, great. If not, then we have to run back and play defense. I'd like to see them get a little bit more aggressive in the paint with LeBron, and I'd like to see Chris Bosch get a little more aggressive in, in taking the ball to the hoop. I also love the fact that Norris Cole has been getting the minutes that he's getting because he's been playing incredible in place of Mario Chalmers who I do not think is a legitimate point guard in this league. I, I, I think Norris Cole is significantly better. I've said the same thing at the um, derision of others uh, 
or to receive the derision of others to say, yeah, the uh, you know Norris Cole, I believe, is the point guard uh, for this team. I even went so far early in the year to say that in the next season, 2014 and 15, Norris Cole is going to be your starting Miami Heat point guard over Mario Chalmers. So I, I definitely agree with that um, assessment. Chalmers can hit some shots at times. Uh, he also makes some really, really boneheaded plays. Uh, but he has that um, driving reverse layup uh, in the middle of two defenders during that 8-0 run in the third quarter before uh, LeBron had that dunk to give the Heat their first lead. Um, so he can, you know, pull out an amazing play here and there, but uh, I don't – I wouldn't have him running my team if I were a GM. But then again, most GMs won't have Chris Bosh, Dwayne Wade, and LeBron James on there anyway. Um, so it's a, a very different kind of a thing. I'd like um, to have Mario Chalmers spell Norris Cole as opposed to Norris Cole spelling uh, Norris Tom, uh, Chalmers. Mario Chalmers, yeah. I I agree completely. We're we're thinking the same thing. Um, I actually, in this series, don't mind the fact that Cole is coming off the bench because for right now, it's not how you start, it's how you finish. And you saw that in game two where Lance Stevenson was – far and away the uh, best guy on the floor. He had scored all these points. He had done all these things, and you couldn't stop him. Switching Norris Cole onto him in the fourth quarter, uh, or halfway through the fourth quarter, he couldn't do anything about it. Um, and you saw that play itself out a couple few times yesterday uh, with that matchup once Norris Cole came in off the bench, and he was a little bit fresher uh, and quicker and able to make that uh, life difficult for Stevenson. So for right now, I'm okay with it, but in the future – yeah, I would, like you, like to see it switch. I think Cole also oh. plays very well with the Birdman. I think the two of them feed off each other very well on defense. Say that again? I think that Norris Cole and, and, and Chris Anderson seem to be in sync on defense and play pretty well together. So that might be another reason to keep them coming in off the bench. Yeah. I mean, they do have that at the same time. Right, that second unit synergy uh, kind of thing that they've been developing, uh, not even just through this year, but for the past couple of years. So that's a, a very good point that I hadn't even considered about why that works. Um, now, switching over to the Western Conference, um, their game three is tonight. The Spurs uh, have won the first two games by a combined 593,000 points. Um, mm-hmm. And Serge was out for the first two games, and the word is that he's going to play tonight. So, Mike, starting with you, does the addition or re-addition of Serge Ibaka give the Thunder a chance tonight's game? Um, Does it matter? Um, I I don't think so. I think we've been talking about it the last month or so. The Spurs are just the well-oiled machine that are just going to run through, and it looks like it's going to be them versus the Heat. So my quick and easy answer would be no. Um, well, and it's it's a shame for Kevin Durant that he's played so well this season, and you know just you know it's there's just another team that's just better right now, unfortunately. Um, so you want to see him win a championship because he's played so well this season, but it doesn't look like that'll come to pass. Um, so I, my answer is no. Um, the Spurs are just they're charging through right now. Yeah, they're they're playing like a well-oiled machine. Scott, does Serge Ibaka give the Thunder a chance, or is this series like? The other series, in your estimation, over? No, I think this is over. This is going to be over in four. Um, I think the Spurs are just playing too well right now. And 
I actually have concerns about them playing the Heat because they will have a home court advantage. And Miami does not play very well in San Antonio. So we'd have to steal one early in order to get home court back. Uh, so I, I, I think I'd like to give my heart a rest right now and try to get through this Indiana series before I have to uh, get the blood pressure up for facing Tim Duncan and, and Greg Popovich and company. Yeah, that's a, a very good point. Um, but since you brought up the fact that the Spurs do have home court advantage, uh, let it be noted for everyone that the finals has switched back to a normal spacing of the game. So the first two, so it's 2 2 one, one, one uh, like every other series, instead of 2 3 2, which it had been for 25, 30 years for, you know, travel reasons, but with the proliferation of charter jets and things like that that you can read up on and everybody knows about, uh, there's no need to have those three games in the middle at the, uh, the road team, as it were. So, you know, maybe that could work to the Heat's advantage also. Um, the Spurs, yeah, they're just they're they're playing really really well, um, and for me, their really breakout star has been um, Kawhi Leonard uh, throughout these playoffs. What kind of impact do you think that he could have going up against a LeBron, um, presumably in the finals, Mike? He can cause problems from what the defense that I understand um, that he can play, and also you know driving the lane. We'll have to see. I don't think LeBron fouls out much, but we'll have to see um, what happens here with that one. Um, so that's what I got on that. Okay, does Kawhi Leonard give you – no, those are great points, great points. Uh, Scott, does Kawhi Leonard concern you at all going up against LeBron, or uh, is that just something, again, you want to leave till later? Everybody on San Antonio concerns me. Uh, you know, they they are solid from 1 to 12. And, you know, I think they showed that last year in the finals. You know, they had a kid that stepped up and beat Ray Allen's record of, of most three-pointers in, in, in a series. Uh, you know, San Antonio is just so capable of beating you from anywhere on the court that uh, you really have to play solid offense and defense against them. So uh, uh, I, I, I think maybe next week, we, you know, we can talk about that a little further, Hopefully. Yeah, exactly. Hopefully, uh, for the Miami Heat fans out there, um, and, you know, I got called a Miami Heat fan uh, on Twitter today in a very, um, you know, a put down kind of a way. But you, you guys all know that uh, the Detroit Pistons are my squad, and you don't have to laugh while you're listening to that. We don't have to talk about how bad they've been. But um, I mean, I live here, so I watch the Heat, but I'm not a Heat fan per se. But yeah, we can leave those conversations to later. Um, I think he just got a about- very good head coach. We did just get a very good head coach and general manager. I'm sorry, vice president of basketball operations, Dan Van Gundy, um, and we're paying him a lot of money, $35 million over uh, five years or seven years or something like that. I don't know. Um, but it's a lot of money. So hopefully, um, you know, he can win some games like he did when he coached the Heat and the Magic, and, um, you know, we can become halfway relevant again. Um, I don't think it'll be... I don't think it'll be it, that it'll be too long before you see Detroit back on the basketball map. Well, you know, we do have Andre Drummond, who um, averaged a double-double this year at age 20 as a center. Um, we do have basketball idiot Josh Smith, who uh, just drives me crazy all the time um, with with his erratic play. And I mean, he's a power forward, but we put him at the three. 
because we also have Greg Monroe, who's kind of like uh, a less physical Zach Randolph. So he's left-handed, six foot nine, six ten, skilled passer, but plays underneath the rim because he's not athletic really. Uh, and then you have Josh Smith, who's left-handed and super athletic, but he doesn't want to go inside. And he wants to hoist up, you know, long twos and threes that he can't make uh, all season long. So I mean, we we do have some bright spots, or the bright spot really being um, Drummond and then Kendrell uh, Caldwell Pope uh, from Georgia, shooting guard, and I mean we do have a couple guys, but you know, hopefully some moves are made. Um, but hopefully we don't give up any more first-round picks like we did this year because we don't have one since we traded that to Charlotte for them taking uh, Ben Gordon off our hands with his struggling contract. And that's enough talk about the Detroit Pistons. I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. Um, bringing everybody back in because um, we don't need to talk about my terrible, terrible basketball team anymore. Um, there was news this week that Jurgen Klinsmann named the 23 gentlemen who will be representing the United States uh, on the men's soccer team going to Brazil for the World Cup in three weeks. And a name that was missing from that list is Landon Donovan, arguably the most prolific scorer, the best player, the face of men's soccer in these United States. So he's not going with the team to the World Cup. Uh, What was your initial reaction to that, Scott? Landon Donovan was probably the only reason I was going to watch the U.S. in the World Cup. Because I I don't know any of these other kids. And asking me about uh, the World Cup team is equivalent to asking me about the U.S. Olympic men's hockey team. Uh, I have very little interest in it, and I really don't know much about it. But I know Landon Donovan. I know Tim Howard. uh, Those are household names. Landon Donovan uh, is one of the most prolific players in the history of this country. And to leave him off the roster uh, for someone else... I don't know what Klinsman is thinking, uh, uh, but you know he's the coach. He makes the decisions, but to to leave this kid off the off the team is is, is a, a travesty. Uh, if if you're telling me that we have players that are better than Landon Donovan in the the group that we're playing in, then we better be able to come out of that group. But I know for sure we're not coming out of that group. So you keep Landon Donovan on that team because you need his experience, you need his leadership, you need him in that locker room. Uh, you need him on that wall, as Jack Nicholson would say. Uh, you know, you need him to be able to, to, to anchor that team uh, because there are no other leaders. You know, Tim Howard uh, is a world-class goalkeeper, but you need him as part of your starting 11. Okay, so not even just on the 23, but on the starting 11, Mike. What was your reaction to the news that Landon Donovan would not be on the uh, uh, the World Cup team? Um, I, I follow soccer. It's it's pretty amazing because this is Klinsman's team now. Um, Klinsman went back and forth with the United States uh, national team years ago, potentially being their coach after he was the German um, coach. And the reason he wasn't was because he wanted to have very much like a general manager type say. Um, the U.S. team didn't want to do that. That's why they brought in Bradley as the head coach, because he could just handle the players on the field, not the developmental program, which is very structured. Um, and it's a whole different animal, to be honest. Um, but then when they had Bradley last World Cup and they, they let him go, they brought in Klinsman and said, okay, you, you can have everything you want. So Klinsman redid the whole psyche of the team, where it's we want players playing overseas. We want our developmental players playing this way and not the other way. 
Um, and this, to be honest, this cutting of this player, it puts Klinsman out on the island. It's either it's going to work or it's going to flame out, and he will be either the coach of the team after the World Cup moving forward for the next, I don't know, four or eight years, or it's over the day after the World Cup ends with the United States, whatever run they make, because he wanted to change everything, and now with this personnel change that we're seeing, um, it, it, this is his team. This is his signature moment in a way, whether it's good or bad. Um, and we'll, we'll have to see how it goes. It'll be interesting. The, the one thing I will say is I did some research on this, and Clemson's very much into the point of you need to be your hair on fire, playing hard all the time about being, you know, a goal scorer if you're a striker in this case. And, you know, you get five shots, you have to put two in, which is a very high ratio. You have to want the ball. And Donovan's points the last few weeks have been, I'll do whatever this team wants me to do. It's more about the team, not about me. And that sounds odd, but that's not what Klinsman wants. He wants the dominating, aggressive players, aggressive styles. And you can see why he left him off, to be honest, because of these types of points. And maybe that's how he was practicing, too. Klinsman, if you're listening, hit me up. Your team's going to lose, and you're going to lose bad. You're better off taking <laughs> Donovan on your team because he's all you had. You're a loser. <laughs> strong, strong words. Um, I saw some discussion about this, um, you know, on, on the television and reading. Uh, Landon Donovan's had 21 shots recently in MLS play and has not scored on any of them, which is the most shot in MLS with someone who has not scored a goal. Um, and also, um, you know, he's getting a little older and he's a step slow. Um slower than he was, and he was always the fast jitterbug. He could get by on his speed. He could make, you know, make people miss. He could get around people, uh, and that was his game. And, you know, if you take the speed away a little bit, you know, I mean, think about Ricky Henderson trying to steal bases if he put on 50 pounds. You know, that that wasn't going to be a, uh, a positive thing, maybe in the eyes of Jurgen Klinsmann. Um, and kind of in a direct move that goes with this, there's a, a very young kid, a 19-year-old, his name is Julian Green. He is um, Amer- he's born to uh, an American father and a German mother because his dad was an, uh, a soldier stationed in Germany. Um, and with his dual citizenship, he could choose to play with either the German uh, senior club or the American senior club, but you can only play for one in your lifetime. So that decision coming up from juniors was uh, heavily anticipated, uh, and he actually chose the United States. And Julian Green, this young kid, was actually on the roster of 23, at the expense of Landon Donovan. Um, I'm just going to stay with Mike, uh, since you said that you follow soccer a little bit uh, more than Scott does. What do you think about the addition uh, or inclusion of Julian Green onto the men's World Cup roster? For for those people that don't, I'll I'll put it in easier terms for our readers that maybe like for like like more football-oriented stuff. If the German national team, who's won, I guess, what, four or five World Cups, if they want him on their team, you want him on yours. You know, it's like if someone is supposed to start for a really, really good team and they're a young, upcoming prospect, you want that kid to pick your team. Um, and he did. So that that should put it in the terms of how important this kid could be. I don't know. God forbid, I hope he would be the next Freddie Adu, you know, for poor DC United fans up here. But if somebody at that level, you know, playing for like Bayern Munich or Leverkusen, those type of clubs, and he's playing at 18, 19 years old, and then the German national team wants him at that young of an age, 
you know, you want him to pick your team, and they're very fortunate that he did. Hopefully he can project, not necessarily this World Cup, because he's really green um, as being young, but the next one in one sport, that's very exciting for the national team. Okay. I've actually, um, I've actually heard him referred to as the X Factor. For now? And, yeah. And, uh, and and nobody really knows what to expect from him. Uh, you know, they know he's a good player, but you know what, you know what's actually going to show out in the World Cup is is is, is anyone's guess. Yeah, exactly. Well, I, mean, well, I, I wouldn't expect him to get much no. burn. Well, the good thing I about mean, the kid is that he, you know, the good thing about the kid is that he's used to playing against top talent in Germany. Mm-hmm. Right, and that's obviously an added bonus. Um, but you know, he only has a couple of uh, caps in senior international play. Um, so yeah, I mean, he's obviously going to have to grow uh, some experience quickly. So uh, we'll see how much, if at all, he plays um, in in Brazil, but. Going back to the the wholesale team, uh, as Scott has mentioned, you know, if we were going to advance, then obviously have Landon Donovan on there. Well, even if we are not going to advance, and this year we are in the group of death. And for those who do not follow soccer at all, this is, of the eight groups, the group that is the hardest, uh, has the highest level of talent across the board. So in our group is, or are the United States, our home country, Ghana with Asamoah Gyan, who had beaten us uh, in the previous World Cup, Portugal with Cristiano Ronaldo, you may have heard of him, and then also Germany, the uh, country of Jurgen Klinsmann's youth, and also uh, where he played his international football, uh, soccer, I should say. So those are the four teams in our group. Um, Are we hopeful to get one win? Are we really trying to get through? Um, What do you think, Scott, is the, the end goal or the mentality as we go into the World Cup? I think they should pack light. I, I think they can go. I think I think they can go to Walmart and get like one bag of underwear, one bag of T-shirts, and call it a day. Uh, I I just don't see this being uh, the World Cup where we're going to shine. I, I just don't think we have the horses. I don't think we have the leadership. Uh, and I think that we are in a treacherous group. Uh, the the list of countries that you, the, that you just named uh, have far better squads than we do. Uh, I mean, this would have to be one of the country's greatest upsets to uh, to not only make it out of the round, but to you know get a win. Uh, mm-hmm. I, I just see it being a very difficult task. Uh, this, this would be something where we would need a lot of help from a lot of people. Um, okay, so pack life, uh, which is kind of a uh, a take off of Walter White in Breaking Bad, having said tread lightly. Um, Mike, what are your thoughts as we go into the 2014 World Cup? Um, they may tie Ghana, but Ghana's had their number on um, the last couple World Cups. With that, I think they went in the, when they went into the, the the playoff round two two World Cups ago, and then last year when they lost to them in the in, a, in the tournament, uh, like the round robin um, division type of um, or group standing, I guess it would be. But I mean, just again for for basic understanding, you're talking about seriously. A top five team in the country in or in the world, um, Germany. A top ten in Portugal, and Ghana. You could argue. And I might add, Portugal could be a top five country if they all play. They're a very creative team. If they get their goals scoring, that's really one of the only questions for them. They play solid defense, but if they can be really creative and score goals, 
they're as good as anybody, period. Um, and then Ghana really fluctuates from 25 to top 10 because they play a hard nose. They're a very athletic team. Um, and then you have the United States, which is people argue is getting better, but we'll have to see. So it's, when you mean group of that, it's, it's really bad, um, to be honest. So it, it would have to be like three like miracle on ices. In, in the same tournament, which would be unbelievable. When you're saying, like, miracles, this would be, like, the biggest miracle in sports ever, really. Um, and, I, and I do stand by that, too, because these teams are that good. Wow, that's uh, that's pretty high praise there. Um, I mean, and for those who might not know, um, just real quick, there's an interesting storyline. There are two different – or two brothers – uh, in this group, one plays for Ghana and one plays for Germany because they're both dual citizens. Uh, so one chose one country and one chose the other. And they played against each other. And they're the Boateng brothers, by the way. Uh, and they played against each other in the previous World Cup in the uh, elimination stage, and they'll play against each other in the not, uh, in the group stage this time. So I thought that was pretty interesting. Uh, Mike, were you going to say something else, or was Scott going to jump in? No, I was going to defer to the experts on on this topic. No, I'm an expert, but you know, I just I read a little bit and you know just try to drive the conversation forward. Um, and we're going to come with our conversation to the last stop. This one is um, a little bit more of a somber point than uh, the previous one. Um, but this past week, there was a press conference uh, for the Baltimore Ravens with running back Ray Rice and his wife. And for those who do not know, Ray Rice, uh, there was a video of him uh, from a an elevator in Las Vegas, I believe it was, uh, and the video was very striking. We spoke about, spoke about this a few weeks ago, uh, of him striking his wife and dragging her off the elevator in a, a domestic abuse kind of situation. Uh, and the, this press conference uh, happened in Baltimore at the Ravens facility and was pretty much the Ravens trying to control the narrative, but Ray Rice was kind of contrite about it, obviously, and he was entering a pre-trial diversionary program. Uh, but the point that really I wanted to speak about was uh, his wife was brought to the co- uh, press conference, and she was made to apologize uh, for basically being the victim of a domestic assault um, incident. And uh, there's been a lot of discussion about this, and this was in bad taste by the uh by the team and, uh, to do that and the PR people. Um, and obviously domestic abuse and violence is not something that uh want to make light of or anything like that. But, um, Scott, what was your reaction um, to the news of that and hearing or seeing what uh, happened at that press conference on Friday? I thought it was nauseating. Uh, you know, I've seen domestic violence throughout my career. Uh, and it's something that you shouldn't take lightly. Uh, I think that it, that Roger Goodell should suspend Ray Rice for the entire season. Uh, there's 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 no room in the NFL for domestic violence, uh, and we're seeing too much of it. Uh, you know, the the proof is in the video. Uh, it's not like anybody can deny it. You know, what you see is what you see. Like with, with Donald Sterling, you know, you hear what you hear. Uh, I think it was in very poor taste. I think that the Ravens should seriously retool their PR department because if this was supposed to be a public relations tool, it backfired. Uh, But you never make the victim uh, feel apologetic. 
for anything because she certainly didn't deserve what she got. Um, I, I, I think the whole thing is is has been made a mockery of, and the NFL needs to step in and say, as a league, we are not going to tolerate domestic abuse. Society will not accept it. The NFL will not accept it. And if I'm a Baltimore Ravens fan and I have a Ray Rice jersey, I'm getting rid of it because he certainly is no character model that I want anyone to, to look up to. There's never an, ex- an excuse for domestic violence. It's something that should never be tolerated and it's something that, 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 that this country has a big problem with. And until it started to take seriously and, and the, the sports leagues do something about it, I think people are going to look up to it and see that it's it's an acceptable form of of violence, and uh, I, for one, just will not tolerate it. I have no respect anymore for, for Ray Rice. I've got no use for him, and uh, I, I think he's he, he's a damage to the league. Very strong statements, uh, Scott, and obviously you're entitled to that opinion, and a lot of people, myself included, agree with you on that, um, Mike. What was what was your reaction, if any, to the press conference from the Ravens uh, relative to the situation that happened this week? I, I gotta say, Cam, you sent the links from the SB Nation site for the Ravens to us um, to just read over it and look over it for our podcast. And I, I found there there the articles you sent and the articles I could find off of that one fascinating because they have Scott's opinion, and 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 they are the Ravens affiliate. You know, they write for SB Nation for the Ravens. And the one title I can say that was amazing was Ray Rice apologizes, so does wife, team doesn't care. You know, Ray Rice apologizes and the team doesn't care, you know, what anyone else thinks. They're going to do what they need to do. And it's just, it's striking. It's it's really sad. You know, I can understand him coming out and apologizing, but the fact that a team-led conference where the wife apologizes, that that's a joke. It's it's a joke, and the Ravens have been such a great franchise under Steve Bishotti, this the owner. Um, you know, going to Super Bowls, going to the playoffs almost every year for the last gosh ten years. Um, have a great rivalry with the Steelers, who are also another great banner franchise. This knocks them down tremendously. What happened, you know, a couple of days ago, because that was a giant farce, and it, it's unfortunate that whoever decided that would be a good idea. Um, just looking at it from the team standpoint, from the ownership franchise standpoint. But, uh, you know, Scott covered it very well. It's, it's a shame. Um, the NFL has, you know, their, their substance abuse policy and other drunk driving, you know, policies and steroid policies. But with this, and they're kind of putting their head, burying it under the sand. When everybody's seen the evidence based on the TMZ video. Um, will they do anything about it? I don't know. Follow up based on this, you know, press conference. But the, as Scott said, they should do something. And it yeah, is a shame. Um, yeah, it's uh, really baffling um, to see that obviously the the PR group from the firm or from the the team were the ones who uh, were at the forefront of of this event uh, on Friday, this press conference uh, that we are discussing. And if you're listening to the podcast, I'm actually going to put the link underneath. Uh, from the Ravens SB Nation site, so you can see uh, what Mike just mentioned, uh, and it has just a timeline of all the events of what happened when, and you can see the video that 
uh, you've probably seen, and if not, then it's on there, and other ancillary articles that you can see throughout the course of these months that have been going on uh, relative to this um, event. But I, I agree with you gentlemen wholeheartedly. Uh, domestic violence is not something that is uh, comedy. It is not something to be taken lightly. It's not something that is joke-worthy. Um, and the, the Ravens, by their actions, made it into a joke. They made it into something that was not serious. Um, and I just I wholeheartedly disagree with it, uh, you know, and not even just to, to make myself out to be a hero, but there was a, a time when I worked at a summer camp that there was a, a child or a guy, high school graduate, trying to beat up his high school graduate um, girlfriend, and I never even laid eyes on this girl. And just on the strength of principle, I, you know, I stepped in between and, you know, had to deal with him, and, you know, we got administration there, and he got kicked off the campus uh, and everything. So in my personal life, uh, I agree with that also. Obviously, there's, uh, there's really no good reason to, to support domestic violence, um, and which is kind of tacitly what the Ravens did. So, um, yeah, just like you gentlemen, very disgusted by all of that. Um, really, really, really terrible. Um, you know, and hopefully we can all move forward and the Ravens grow a brain and uh, don't do anything like that again in the future. Mm-hmm. Um, now, just to, to wrap up this podcast today, very quickly, um, we do have, most people have tomorrow off from work. This is Memorial Day weekend, um, and this weekend has a special significance, just like all weekends do, or all holidays do, but this one is in the memory of those who have fought and lost their lives, laid down their lives uh, in the armed services for the defense of the freedoms of this country uh, that we so richly enjoy. Um, and, gentlemen, I wanted to just see if you had any uh, words that you wanted to share or thoughts that you had uh, personal feelings about Memorial Day weekend and what it means and uh, to you. Well, I think we have to uh, be thankful for for those that, that have fought and served and that have given us the liberties that we enjoy today uh, and that those liberties should not be taken for granted uh, and that those liberties that we've achieved as a nation, unfortunately, occurred on a battlefield before they ever saw the light of day in the Senate or in the House of Representatives. So we we really have to salute our uh, servicemen who have fought for us in previous wars in 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 the uh, current theaters. Uh, I I think that uh, that that they should all be memorialized and acknowledged. Uh, very nice, Michael. Um, any thoughts heading into this Memorial Day weekend? Yeah, just you know, profound appreciation for everybody and all they've done. Um, being in the D.C. area with Congress and the government and everything, you kind of just go, oh, my gosh, you know, what are they doing? But with with the with the military personnel, you have to, you know, just say thank you for your time. You guys do a great job for us. And, you know, they're all over, they're everywhere, you know, 150 countries plus, you know, people stationed. And they're sacrificing their time um, and, you know, their efforts for America. You know, you do your job and, you know, it's for the children, or it's for you know your you know yourself to get better. But they're sacrificing their, or they're putting their time out there for America. Period. And you know you can't say enough for that, and you have to appreciate their time. Yeah, very true. Um, and obviously, specifically going back uh, into previous wars, or you know even current um, wartime actions or warlike actions that have had people um, you know lay down their lives in defense of this country uh, from all of us at the State of the U. Uh, we greatly appreciate uh, the sacrifices that you've made to, to let us enjoy uh, these freedoms of this great, great country, um, such as being able to have this podcast and being able to talk
among them. Uh, so for all who have uh, a personal family member or, you know, someone that they know who has lost their life in defense of this country, uh, we greatly appreciate it. Uh, and we will be memorializing or thinking about everyone tomorrow uh, on this Memorial Day holiday um, as, you know, we go forward uh, and just, you know, have a moment of reverence uh, if you're someone who does things like that. Um, and so, ladies and gentlemen, this brings us to the end of the podcast. We had a really great discussion today, I think. Uh, touched on a lot of different things from football to recruiting to, uh, you know, the basketball playoffs and a lot of other things. So we hope that you enjoyed this. Uh, Scott, any last words before we wrap it up? Just like to see the Heat uh, uh, put on a stellar performance tomorrow night and take it back to Indiana and wrap it up and uh, get ready for the Spurs. Very succinct. Mike, any last thoughts? I hope the Canes can get a super regional. Hope they can keep it going. Very true. And as it is 625 right now, that comes out in about an hour and a half from recording time. Uh, So 8 o'clock p.m. on this Sunday night. Uh, And if you're listening to the uh, archive later, you can go and check it out. I'm sure it's up on uh, up on State of the U. That's our website, stateoftheu.com, or anywhere else on the Internet. Um, and, yeah, that's it. So I'm just going to wrap it up, guys. Again, thank you. This has been Cam Underwood and Scott Salmon and Mike Grunewald uh, here with the State of the U podcast. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time. Bye, guys. Take care. Thank you. Bye.